This is They Create Worlds, episode 115, The Return of the Sidreyu of Surtek. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, last time we found out all about wizards and all sorts of crazy things that happened, and really a lack of innovation as far as a company that should have really advanced a lot further than they were able to. And now we're back in order to see how their struggle against their competitor, who was really off to a rocky start, Ultima, and Richard Garrett, Everything going on with Origin Systems really just outpaced anything that Surtech was doing at the time, which unfortunately ultimately led to their stagnation and, from what I understand, downfall and irrelevance. Well, it should have, right? In the last episode, we talked about how the Wizardry series was just not innovating. They're using the same engine, very minor tweaks. They're still trapped on the Apple II computer, even getting into the year 1987, by which time that's a dead platform. They haven't jumped to the Commodore 64. The Atari 8-bits are relevant by this time as well, but back when the Atari 8-bit meant something, they didn't jump onto that. They weren't getting on the 16-bit computers. And you would think that by the time of the fourth game, that that would just be it for the company, and that would be the logical thing to think. As we will see, of course, the company does ultimately peter out. but. Not yet, because even as this ridiculous, and we try not to be too partisan on this show, but Wizardry 4 really was ridiculous. We can say that. After this ridiculous Wizardry 4, there was no place left to go, or there shouldn't have been, except that they had someone waiting in the wings, someone that had actually already finished a Wizardry game, even before Wizardry 4 came out. But they held it back because they didn't want to release it before 4. And that would lead to a brief period of creative renaissance for the company, and really the period that is probably looked at most fondly today, though, as we'll see as the episode progresses, this renaissance will be short-lived. But now that I've built all that up, let's not talk about that yet. We're not. We'll get to it in a second, obviously. But first, I do want to address a couple of things as to how the company could have weathered this period when, as we said, there were diminishing sales, diminishing returns, diminishing quality in their product. A couple things. First of all, Surtech really was the wizardry company. What I mean by that is they almost exclusively did wizardry, which is very unusual. I mean, yes, Origin's biggest property was Ultima, and until Chris Roberts came along and did Wing Commander, that was their bread and butter, but they had other games going on at the company. At Surtech, it was almost entirely wizardry. You have to remember some things about the company. As we said last time, it was in Ogdensburg, New York, which Robert Woodhead himself, who was a native of Ogdensburg, said is north of the Great White North. This is a very remote location. It's a small town as far as these things go, and it's not a hub of any kind. Obviously, your two big hubs in the video game industry are Silicon Valley, Northern California, and Chicago. Chicago, because of its historic ties to the coin-operated amusement industry. 
pinball and all of that and slot machines even before video games. You had a few other places that started to build up because they kind of made sense for this reason or another. There was some stuff going on in Southern California because Hollywood's there. You can never go wrong around New York City. Ogdensburg is in New York, but it's nowhere near New York City. Then you had Baltimore because Avalon Hill happened to start there, so there was a game culture. Austin had a game culture in the pen and paper world that then started to flourish and expand out from there. Ogdensburg, New York was never going to be a hub like that. The offices, once the company got big enough to have offices, were in a strip mall in Ogdensburg. Over time, they came to basically be the entire strip mall. As the company got bigger and more successful, they took over more and more of it. But that was their headquarters, just a mall in Ogdensburg. And it was a mostly a family operation. Family, friends of family. Of course, the two brothers ran it, Norman and Robert Sirotek. Their father was technically the president, but he was really more of an advisor. So Robert Woodhead, this guy who happened to be from Ogdensburg, was really the only guy doing much internally. He did the wizardry games with Andrew Greenberg, but as time went on, Andrew became more and more remote from the process. I mean, he was very, very involved in the first one. I'm not trying to push him out of the wizardry story. But by the time you got to the third one, he wasn't really very involved anymore. And unlike Robert, he was not an employee of the company. So Robert's focusing his time on wizardry. They really don't have anybody else. And they don't get much in the way of submissions because they're just kind of out there (laughs) in the middle of nowhere. It's not a place you think to necessarily submit things. They did a few games in the mid-80s that were submitted by outside people. We talked about one of those in our Top 100 Video Games episode, and that was the game Rescue Raiders, which is significant not for its sales at the time, but because it was essentially the prototype of the real-time strategy game. Uh, As we said in the Top 100 Games episode, you had a base, units were emerging from the base, you had a helicopter, you were marching across the screen trying to take out the other base all in real time. This was the game that served as the basis for the Japanese game Herzog, which had a sequel called Herzog 2, which then was one of the prime influences on your Dune 2s and your Warcrafts and your Command and Conquers and all of that good stuff. So that's an interesting game, but it was just a couple of high school students that submitted it, and it wasn't a big seller at the time. In the absence of domestic software sales, how was this working? And there were two things that are interesting to bring up. The first and lesser of importance is that they did get into distribution a little bit, just a little bit. By 1982, 1983, by that time period, you really had wholesale distribution having taken complete control of selling software into retail. You know, in the very early days of the industry, when guys like Surtech and Broderbund and all of them were getting started, they were often calling everybody themselves and being like, hey, I got games, you want to buy them? It was a smaller world back then. By this period of time, we're getting to the point where wholesale has come in. So, of course, companies like Surtech are doing their business now through wholesalers. But while wholesale had become the standard in the United States, It didn't really exist in Canada yet. We have to remember that Surtec has very close ties to Canada. Ogdensburg is very close to the Canadian border, but the Surtec family is also originally from Canada. That's where, well, they're originally from the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, but that's where Frederick Sr. immigrated was first to Canada. So at this point, the Surtecs are making their home in New York, but they've got Canadian ties as well. So that's a market that's near and dear to their hearts. Obviously, it's nowhere near the size of the market that the United States is. But 
there's no wholesale distribution there. So they decide to change that. And they get in touch with their main distributor in the eastern United States, appropriately enough, called Eastern Distributing. That's a company that was based out of Baltimore. And they talked to him and they were like, okay, so there's not much going on in Canada. There's no distribution up there. Let's get into distribution together. We'll buy in quantity from you at just above your cost. Then we will take this product, turn it around, and wholesale it in the Canadian market. They got a couple of friends of Frederick Ciratech, the father again. They got a couple of friends of Frederick Ciratech to run this thing for them. And then it was a joint venture. Frederick was keeping an eye on it, and his friend was keeping an eye on it. And they called it Frantech Distributing. It was named, the first name of the uh, friend, I think, was Francisco or something like that. I'd have to check my notes. I probably should. But I'm feeling lazy, so I won't. (laughs) But that's where the name comes from. So that's why they called it Frantech, because it's a combination of Francisco and the Suratech name. This company became a very big deal in Canada. It became the leading Canadian distributor. I mean, they were first in. Why not? The Ciratex eventually sold that company, sold Frantech to MicroSD, which, along with SoftCell, was one of the two biggest wholesalers of computer games and computer software in the entire United States. Obviously, MicroSD is taking this opportunity to expand up into Canada. And then MicroSD ends up being purchased by Ingram, which is a major, major, major wholesaler to bookstores and to libraries. Ingram still exists today. In this period, they were getting into the software distribution business as well because this was the height of the bookware craze and everyone thought that computer software was going to be, you know, like paperback novels or something. We did an episode sort of on that. Jimmy Meyer at the Digital Antiquarian has done some great episodes about that. It's really tangential to what we're doing today, though. You know, when has that ever stopped us, right? Yeah, definitely. But the point is... MicroSD bought it, and then Ingram bought them, and I'm not sure that Ingram still runs it in Canada. I don't know. They may have sold it off at this point. I did not follow the twists and turns, but uh, according to Robert Ciratek, who I did interview a couple years back, that distributor still exists today, headquartered in Toronto, and it's still one of the biggest wholesalers in uh, Canada for game software, video games. So that helped. That helped keep them in the black a little bit during the lean years, though that certainly wouldn't have been enough on its own. The big thing that really kept them going and what really, as Robert Suratek himself said, uh, papered over some <laughs> some things for them, was that wizardry got incredibly big in Japan. Like, ridiculously, really, really big. Space Invaders big? You know, nothing's ever Space Invaders big, but close to Dragon Quest big? Not quite there, but close to Dragon Quest big. Dragon Quest 1. Sure. I mean, I don't know sales figures, but we'll call it that. We'll call it that. Uh, you know, And I'm sure the sales figures are smaller because this is computer software. But just in terms of penetration of the market, it was huge. It got there originally. The original game did through the company StarCraft. We talked about StarCraft extensively during our Rotorboond episode. And no, this has nothing to do with constructing more pylons or needing more Vesping gas. StarCraft the game and StarCraft the company have nothing to do with each other. But still, Jeff, construct some more pylons just to be safe. Okay, fine. Additional pylons, I should say. Additional pylons. How many? 
I mean, I just sort of placed them everywhere, like 20 of them in a big circle. And then I put all the photon cannons around that. And then I lose anyway. So it, it really doesn't matter. Yes, but not before you lead everybody on a like 45 minute chase with a single <laughs> unit left building pylons all over the map. I haven't forgotten that. <laughs> and you never will. <laughs> ah, tangents, we do them. But really, before we get into that, I want to know exactly with StarCraft, we said that everything with Wizardry was on the Apple II. What platform did they bring over StarCraft? Did they have to port it over? Because as we said before, in Japan, Apple II didn't really have a huge market penetration. Obviously, there's a different computer that they're using over there. Right. They would port it to other computers as well, like the uh, NEC computers that were big and whatnot. I don't know exactly which all platforms the Wizardry games appeared on, but the answer, I believe, is most of them. The NEC platforms, uh, you know, Sharp had some popular platforms, Fujitsu as well. Over time, it appeared on pretty much all of them. But it wasn't StarCraft, though, that made it big. StarCraft got it there first. We won't go all into their history because we talk about them in Broderbund and an early Japanese uh, computer game episode as well. But StarCraft was very dialed into what was happening in the West because they were a trading company. I mean, they were specifically software, computer games, but they were a trading company that was very keen to bring their games to the West and bring Western games to the East. So they weren't just going willy-nilly. They had good contacts with people like the Broderbund people that they'd built up over time. And they were very sensitive to the latest trends going on in the U.S. market and figuring that they could translate those trends into success in Japan as well. So they saw Wizardry. They were quick to get in on that. I think as early as 1982, it was already showing up in Japan. It wasn't big at that point, but it got it started. And then it moved from StarCraft eventually to ASCII Corporation. Kei Nishi who was very aggressive, very Western-focused, and he's often been called the Bill Gates of Japan, uh, not the least because Kei Nishi and Bill Gates became very good friends, and Kei Nishi actually was Microsoft Japan for a bit. His ASCII corporation had uh, deep ties with Microsoft. But he wasn't just called the Bill Gates of Japan for those reasons. He was also called that because he was a hard-driving, not always socially... Adept. Polite, adept, and really out to build a, an empire, a software empire in Japan. So very similar in that way. ASCII Corporation took it over. And then a lot of what happened, and I don't have a lot of sources into this side of things, but once Dragon Quest hit, and of course Dragon Quest was partially based on wizardry, but once Dragon Quest hit... One thing that really drove Dragon Quest, and we talked about this, of course, in our episode on Square and Enix, was the intimate ties that Yuji Horii, the creator of Dragon Quest, had in the publishing industry, in the manga publishing industry, and with Shonen Jump magazine, which was the magazine, the manga publication for young people in Japan at the time. And it was them taking an active interest in Dragon Quest that allowed it to flower. There was this tie-in between story-driven video games and other storytelling mediums, particularly manga, that fueled each other and created this RPG phenomenon. It's not something that gets talked about a lot in Western sources, though we did go into it in some detail in our Square and Enix episode, but it was very important to this spread. ASCII Corporation was successful in doing the same kinds of things. 
they made wizardry transmedia in Japan before that was even a word that had really entered our lexicon. They made sure that there were wizardry manga. They made sure there were wizardry anime. They made sure there was wizardry merchandise. That's kind of surprising. Yeah, they made sure there were wizardry soundtracks. They basically followed the Dragon Quest model for how to make an RPG big with young people in Japan, and they applied that to wizardry. It worked like gangbusters. So not only did the game sell very well there, there are wizardry games that are only in Japan that were developed by ASCII Corporation. This was all authorized. The Suratex were happy to let them do this, and they maintained final say. You know, I asked Robert Suratex about this. I mean, they were aware of everything that was going on, and they kept final approval, and they had the ability, if they thought something didn't mesh with what they considered the wizardry brand to be, they could say no, and it would be squashed. This was all above board. But it was all Japan only, and the Ceratex and Surtec didn't really exert much control over it. Yeah, they had final approval, but, I mean, they didn't really micromanage or anything. So this is something that took on a life of its own in Japan and became huge. So there are wizardry games in Japan that are only in Japan. There's wizardry anime. There's soundtracks, just like there's Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy soundtracks. There were wizardry soundtracks released. Because that game became so big, that allowed Surtech to survive during this period of time when Wizardry had diminishing returns and the games were selling less and less in the U.S. and getting harder and more finicky. They just turned Japanese. Really kind of surprising that they didn't just take some of the Japanese product and then bring it back over to the United States and say, hey guys, want more Wizardry? Well, again, that would be very difficult to do because you have to remember that these Japanese computers are very, very different from their Western counterparts. And we talked about this before in some of our Japanese computing episodes that, you know, the Japanese computer market didn't standardize around an IBM-compatible PC and Windows until long after that had become standard everywhere else. And the reason for that is that darn language, (laughs) those pictographs. So that would have been an awful lot of effort. And quite frankly... Surtech didn't have the people (laughs) to do something like that, even if they were interested. But it was very helpful for them to continue to survive this fallow period. This was also part of the reason, probably, that Wizardry 4 got delayed. We talked about how it took years and years that they announced it. They announced it was available. They told the magazine, go ahead and announce it was available. (laughs) And it was three years after that that it was actually released. We talked about some of the reasons, but one of the reasons for that is that Robert Woodhead was becoming more and more engaged with what was going on in Japan and more and more interested in what was going on in Japan. He would, in fact, ultimately leave Surtech to found his own company that was involved in translation and dubbing of anime and such, Uh, a company that may still even exist on paper to this day. I don't know how much, how active he is anymore, but... I mean, it was certainly active into the 2010s, if if not still active today. So, I mean, he had a lot of success in that field. But as he was getting more and more interested in that, he was pulling more and more away from the whole video game company, computer game company. Some of that distraction was probably another reason why Wizardry 4 took so many years to develop. So that kind of catches us up the rest of the story. And the part one, just to keep things thematically Tied together, I kind of wanted to get the whole Wizardry story up to Wizardry 4, but we had to leave a few things behind in its wake, and so that kind of catches us up to this period. 
So now we turn then to how the company managed to become successful again. It really came down to a random guy in Atlanta, Georgia. That's about as far as New York as you can get without going across <laughs> laterally. Yeah, exactly. You know, north, just straight north-south. That's almost as far as you can get. Not quite into Florida. But uh, <laughs> this gentleman is David Bradley, who is really just as important to the wizardry story as the original creators of the game, Woodhead and Greenberg. David Bradley, who also often goes by D.W. Bradley, was a big RPG nerd, pen and paper RPGs. Like so many people in the early days of the hobby, he discovered Dungeons and Dragons and the like in college in the 70s, soon after it came out. That was really the first inflection point for D&D to spread beyond a few hobbyists was college campuses during that period of time. He was also becoming interested in computers. He discovered he was a natural programmer. He enjoyed programming, and that became his focus in college. When the Apple II came out, he bought himself one and just went to town programming. He was also a big just game player generally, and he was a very gifted or preternatural game player. He was playing bridge, which is a pretty complicated card game by the time he was four years old. He was playing chess by the time he was five years old. He played all kinds of games. He was really good at games or really good at understanding games. He was spending so much time in the computer lab that programming games that he was eventually banned from <laughs> being in the computer lab because of all the game stuff he was doing. So, you know, this is very similar to the wizardry people on the Plato system. Sometimes doing games when you weren't supposed to be doing games. You know, Robert Woodhead was doing a lot of that and, and getting booted off of systems. In a way, it's, he's just kind of the perfect person to uh, bring this forward. So, you know, he's playing computer games. He knows wizardry. He's actually working in business software during the day, his day job. Really important database and inventory programs for the banking industry, the medical industry, the retail industry. Good, serious stuff. But then at night, he would work on games and submit them around. He actually did a game in 1981 called Parthian Kings. Avalon Hill, which very briefly and uh, to not too much good effect, tried to get involved in computer software. Went ahead and published that game in 1981. It wasn't a hit or anything, but he was on his way. He uh, switched from there to kind of doing RPG stuff. He wasn't directly inspired by Wizardry because he kind of started working on it at about the same time that Wizardry came out, or I should say he wasn't inspired to start it by Wizardry. Sure, he probably took some uh, design cues from Wizardry once it appeared. Then he sent it around, you know, shopped it around. He sent it to Surtech because Surtech was the Wizardry publisher. I mean, one of the premier RPG companies. He sent it in and he heard nothing. And he called and he called and he called. He kept calling and going back and forth with the company for over a year after he submitted it. And then finally they said, okay, sure, we will publish your game, but under one condition. We want it to be the next Wizardry game. So he wasn't setting out to make the next game in the Wizardry series. But Wizardry 4 development is dragging on and on and on. It's clear that the original developers of Wizardry are not 
putting as much effort or focus into it as they once were, and that it was time to start looking to the future of the series, perhaps without the original people if necessary. So for those reasons, they said, okay, we'll publish it, but we need it to be the next wizardry. So he had to rework it. It had to fit within kind of the existing wizardry framework, so to speak. So he was still kind of stuck to a large degree with the clunky old way of doing things. It was on the Apple II, like the others were, and it had to have those same black and white dungeons and somewhat limited graphics, which had become the hallmark of the series. But it was a break, at least, from the complete old way of doing things. You didn't have to have a character in the previous games. It wasn't super-duper hard. It was meant to be actually accessible to people. So he adapted his game into what became Wizardry 5, Heart of the Maelstrom. He actually finished it around 1986 or early 1987. Not only had Wizardry 4 been announced, it had been announced as ready to ship and available. (laughs) Three years before it was available, they couldn't very well release Bradley's game before they released the Wizardry 4 that they have literally been talking about for years now. So they sat on the game until Wizardry 4 came out and Wizardry 4 got to have a little time to itself in the market. And then Heart of the Maelstrom was released in 1988. Wizardry 5 sold better than 4, which wasn't very hard to do. The real question is, did it sell better than 3? That I don't know. I don't know that, but it didn't sell great. It didn't do well. It had the same problems as the others in the sense that it was the same old Apple II platform, which is a year older and a year less relevant. It's largely stuck within the confines of the old engine, even though we're starting to see some changes even more primitive looking in 1988 than it was in 1987. So it didn't sell well, but the important thing was is it got Bradley involved in the series. And Bradley was a very good programmer and a very keen game designer. Once he had his foot in the door, once it was just get this project out there and ship it and do it, he could then take the series, make it his own, rework everything from scratch. So even though 5 wasn't that great, once that was done, Bradley started work on Bane of the Cosmic Forge, Wizardry 6. Wizardry 6 was the first game in the series that finally, finally, finally broke with this ancient past. For one thing, it was created for the MS-DOS environment, for IBM PC compatibles. It's time now. By 1987, the PC is on the rise. It's becoming the primary game platform for a variety of reasons. This is the platform you need to be on if you're going to sell in the future. This is the same period of time that uh, the Ultima series is struggling with that same reality and is getting on to PCs. It's going to be full-color graphics, finally, because this has already been a thing ever since The Bard's Tale In 1985, this has been the thing, because the Bard's Tale is basically what Wizardry could have been on the Commodore 64 if only it had wanted to be. More expansive environments, outdoor and indoor areas, full-color graphics, more detailed monster sprites. We're finally seeing all of this stuff in a Wizardry game. 
we're seeing an actual story. This is planned as the beginning of a trilogy of games, which, of course, is something that the Ultima series had started doing by this point as well. It's getting a little more sophisticated in plot than the previous games had been. The game is bright and colorful and vibrant. The window of the dungeon is bigger, so it's not only full-color graphics, but instead of being this little window up in the corner, it's a nice big window in the center of the screen. It looks much more like a Bard's Tale or a Might and Magic game, both games that were obviously inspired by the Wizardry template, but had long since uh, outpaced it. You still have the Wizardry trademark of having a large party of characters, lots of different uh, menu commands to use, and all of that good stuff. So it's a wizardry game, but it's a modern wizardry game with far better interface, far better graphics, more story. I mean, I don't think necessarily, you know, the world's greatest story ever, but definitely more story and with the promise of even more story on top of that in the next one because it's going to be a trilogy. You know, this one was a really good game. They had real NPC interaction this time. Wizardry 5 had kind of done it a little bit because, like I said, Bradley was starting to move away from that. But, you know, Ultima had NPC interaction for a long time. Sometimes that NPC interaction was frustrating. You had to hit the exact right keyword to get the exact right keyword to give as a keyword to somebody else to find the thing on the other side of the map. Sometimes what Richard Garriott did with NPC interaction was clunky, but it was there. And Bradley introduced a little bit of it in 5, and then in 6, he actually had real NPC interaction, which was great through something akin to a parser system. It wasn't always perfect, but it uh, got the job done. It's a pretty good dungeon crawl, all things considered. And unlike the last couple of games, it actually sold, which was good. It was released in 1990, came out for MS-DOS, came out on the Mac, came out on the Amiga... Of course, it went to Japan and got big in Japan, like they all do in this period. And that's what brought Surtech back and set the stage for what is probably the most fondly remembered and most significant game of the entire series, which is Wizardry 7, Crusaders of the Dark Savant. Well, that sounds like they're going up in the world. We're getting some innovation here. We got a trilogy planned. That means that we're doing some good here. We're actually advancing. We have someone who's dedicated enough to the system that he's going, all right, let's innovate on what we have that's good. Let's get some feedback. Let's not alienate any kind of new player. Let's not hamstring ourselves and really accept what the public and the gaming community really want out of wizardry. Exactly. This is taking the whole thing to a next level and did it in stages. The first game he did, Wizardry 5, didn't make too much of a change, but it had a few tweaks and improvements over what had come before and it got his foot in the door. Then with Wizardry 6, he was like, okay, let's finally get all of this interface stuff and all of this graphical stuff updated and let's get real NPC interaction and then let's get good graphics but it's still a fairly linear dungeon crawl which is what the wizardries tended to be so then with wizardry 7 he pushed even further the innovations he was making in 6 for instance it had 8-bit VGA graphics first time in the series so the graphics were even more gorgeous it continued the story and deepened the story that started in the first game but most importantly it just opened up 
the world. This was no longer a linear game in the same way that wizardry games had tended to be linear in the past. So you're saying more of an open world exploration thing similar to how Ultima is. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. But it really even took it beyond what Ultima was doing in this time. Because it puts you in this world with four factions. And these four factions all have their own lore and backstory and interactions with each other. And you're dropped right in the middle of this world, because of course you're coming in in the middle of the story, since it's the second part of a trilogy. You're dropped right in the middle of this world with these factions, and you're not told where to go or what you have to do. I mean, it probably, honestly, too obtuse. It probably could have given you a little more hand-holding, but it is completely open world. You have to explore, you have to interact with the factions. The factions and members of the factions even interact with each other while you're doing your own thing, and the world kind of changes a little bit dynamically as characters move around and sometimes even pick up key treasures that you might need, so you have to find them. I mean, it's really open world, which is a huge change for wizardry. I mean, he's sticking with the same basic systems in terms of characters and combat. You know, wizardry games are always about assembling a faceless party. They have portraits, but faceless in the sense that they're not defined characters. You don't go running around with your friends Minsk and Boo, you know, you go run around with Bob and Joe and Steve and whatever else you want to name them, and none of them have backstories. So it's that wizardry tactical combat, which has always been what the wizardry series is at its core about, creating a group of characters and sending them out to engage in complex battles with monsters while you're getting treasure, but it opens it up into a whole world with a variety of environments to explore and a variety of factions to get a handle on, and really no guidance to how to proceed. You just explore and discover and eventually unravel. And the story isn't, once again, it isn't great stories. Bradley, who it should be noted is practically the only person working on these games, is definitely a better programmer and designer than he is a storyteller, but it's still attempting something in its narrative of this Cosmic Forge artifact that was not being attempted very often in games at that time, which still tended to be more system-focused and less story-focused. So It really sounds to me like this very much has echoes of games that came later, particularly The Elder Scrolls, the later ones, where you're just mm-hmm. sort of dumped in there. Or something like Far Cry, where you're just dumped in there and go, do what you want to do, have fun. Yeah, it is one of the very, very early games in that vein truly is. It was released in 1992, uh, just to get back to the year, so two years after Wizardry 6 had come out. It's massive, it's nonlinear, it's varied, and yeah, just very much like how uh, the Elder Scroll games kind of set you loose on a world, it's got a very similar feel to that. So this is kind of the high watermark. I think most people that are real Wizardry fans, I want to say, you know, be upfront about the fact that I'm not one of them. That's just not a series I played back in the day. But I think it's fair to say that amongst the true wizardry fans, this is the one that most of them, that more of them would say is the real high point of the series and was really the best exemplar of what a wizardry game could be. And it was really just about all David Bradley that made that possible. So wizardry's coming along a little better. And at the same time, their fortunes are also changing for the better. 
in other ways, because they finally hit upon a second series so that they don't have to just be the wizardry company anymore. As I said, the company was a distribution powerhouse for a time in Canada, and it had some real connections in Canada that it didn't necessarily have to the same degree in the United States. Even though, obviously, the Wizardry games were very big in the United States, just in terms as a company people thought of to submit game ideas to, I think it probably had a stronger profile in Canada than it did in the United States. And that's why, I think, they got a submission from a gentleman by the name of Ian Curry, a simple little puzzle game called Freakin' Funky Fuzzballs. Triple F? I suppose so. As I said, this is a puzzle game. It's a simple little game. It's a two-dimensional, top-few game. You're controlling this fuzzball. He's kind of a vaguely Pac-Man-looking character, though the game itself is not a Pac-Man clone. It's just, you know, he's a big yellow circle. It's got some fox ears in the tail. And the basic gameplay, he's set loose in a world full of tiles. And these tiles will change color and eventually disappear as you walk on them and walk around the map. To get off the map, you have to find the proper number of keys to open the exit. The keys are on the tiles. The keys are only discoverable by stepping on the tiles. But of course, as you step on tiles over time, the tiles are disappearing. So you have to figure out how to get all the keys and avoid enemies and exit the level. There are enemies on the map, as I said, as well, and there are certain other items that you can get, things like potions and rings that increase your amount of health. It's got this kind of vague fantasy theme to it, even though there's nothing remotely medieval fantasy about the main character. You know, it's just simple, fun kind of puzzle game. Ian Curry and Robert Kohler write it and submit it to Surtech. Surtech not only publishes it, but they OEM it because it's a nice, simple little game. It's something you can package with a computer or with a set of, you know, with a bundle of games or whatever. And so this becomes far and away Surtech's bestseller. I don't have numbers for you, but Robert Surtech told me that just in terms of sales volume, this was far and away their bestseller. Now, since they were doing a lot of OEM deals and because it's a simpler, cheaper game, I don't think it made the most money of any Surtech game ever. But just in terms of pure volume, it moved like nuts. It was released in 1990, right after Tetris had become huge on the Game Boy. The market was hungry for puzzle games. This was a puzzle game. Right place, right time, blew up. That began a relationship between Ian Curry and Robert Kohler, uh, these Canadians, and Surtech. So they published his next game as well. It took him a while to make it. He and Kohler had a company, Mad Lab Software was the name of it, and they spent a few years working on a game called Jagged Alliance that Surtech released in 1995. Are you familiar with Jagged Alliance? I've never heard of it ever. First time I'm hearing about it is now. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a bit niche. I didn't play it back in the day either, but... It was a successful series. It was a top-down, turn-based tactical game where you control a group of mercenaries to retake a South Atlantic island from 
a group of people that have conquered it, taken it over. A group of hireable mercenaries, 60 of them. You can have up to eight on your team at a time, and they have different strengths, weaknesses, special abilities, etc. So you take on a series of tactical missions that are in a top-down view, turn-based. You use action points to move and perform actions. It's kind of a, it's a strategy game. Very similar in some ways to some of the other tactical strategy games that are appearing at about the same time, like a Crusader over at Origin and XCOM from Microprose. Obviously, XCOM also has the much bigger strategic game, but of course, the heart and soul of that game is kind of the tactical map encounters. It's kind of in that same niche of tactical strategy games. You could even call it a tactical role-playing game. Some people do. These were briefly kind of popular in the mid-1990s, and it ended up not being popular long after that because it was kind of the point where turn-based and real-time were colliding. You know, the turn-based stuff quickly got taken over by real-time or pseudo-real-time games like, say, Baldur's Gate, which is real-time with pause. Even though it's turn-based, it moves essentially in real-time. That This genre kind of got overshadowed very quickly, but Jagged Alliance was uh, pretty successful back in its day. I mean... Sales weren't huge by today's standards. I don't have sales figures for you. A lot of this Surtex stuff, there really aren't sales figures out there because they were a privately held company and didn't have to report that kind of thing. But it was definitely successful. It became a viable second series for the company. Now, what you're saying with this tactical RPG element, is that more in line with, say, something like Final Fantasy Tactics or Disgaea or something like that? Well, that's the Japanese version of it, right? You know, the U.S. version of it is a little different. It's uh, like XCOM, like Crusaders, and like Jagged Alliance, but it's similar. I mean, in those Japanese RPGs, you tend to have character classes, and there's a lot more RPG-ish elements, a lot more JRPG-ish story, and oftentimes anime uh, characters and cutscenes. But it's not quite that. Yeah, it's similar in the sense that You've got characters with different capabilities and you're on a map and you're moving them around the map and attacking enemies on the map, similar to what an ogre battle or a Final Fantasy Tactics would be. So yeah, there's there's definitely some similarities. So a step down from there, but a step up from, say, the Ultima map-based combat where you move the characters around. Oh yeah, no, because you have to take into account your characters' strengths, weaknesses, what equipment they have and take advantage of the terrain of the map and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's definitely more in-depth than the Ultima combat system, absolutely. Yeah, that's Jagged Alliance. It comes from Mad Lab, Ian Curry's company, and then Ian Curry becomes part of the family because the Cyrotex have a sister, Norman Robert Dew, by the name of Linda. Linda is actually 11 years younger than uh, Robert, She's much younger. When they started the company, she was still a student, but she did some part-time helping out around the office uh, at the company and manned their hotline for a while as well, because wizardry being complex games, they soon discovered people were calling and wanted to know how to get past this, how to do that, so they set up a hotline, and Linda Curry helped out with that. Then she went off and got a business degree, and then she came back and she actually is now Linda Curry. She married Ian Curry, keeping it still mostly all in the family, <laughs> as uh, Sir Tech was kind of wont to do. So we're in the middle 90s. Things are looking kind of good. 
Wizardry 7 is the best wizardry. They've got Jagged Alliance now. They've got an in with a German series. There was a German company called Attic Entertainment that was founded by three guys, including a guy named Guido Hinkle. They did a series of party-based games. They took a lot of their cues, uh, not only from Wizardry, but I think from Dungeon Master as well, in having first-person exploration and a GUI interface and paper doll inventories and all of that. But then when you went into combat, it actually switched to an isometric view, and you had a more tactical experience to combat than you did in something like Wizardry or or Dungeon Master, more similar to... uh, I guess Jagged Alliance to a degree or more similar to Baldur's Gate if Baldur's Gate were a turn-based game instead of a real-time with pause kind of game. So it kind of blended a couple of these different ideas. Guido Hinkle approached Sirtec through Sirtec's German distributor because they were there and said, we've got these games. Would you be interested in selling them in the United States? So in 1992, they released Realms of Arcania, Blade of Destiny. That one is a little more niche than the Wizardry series, but again, they had another series now. They have Wizardry, they have Realms of Arcania, which they released a couple of games. They had Jagged Alliance. They were finally starting to get a few different things going, but unfortunately, it was kind of too little too late. That kind of brings us to our last story here, which is kind of the fall of Sirtec. We've talked about the early 90s in computer game history a few times. We haven't done an episode specifically devoted to it, but when we've talked about as many computer game publishers as we have, it can't help but come up. This was a period of time when there was a lot of consolidation, where companies were getting bigger and the bigger companies were eating the smaller companies and the smaller companies were either getting acquired themselves or trying to get bigger themselves, oftentimes to disastrous effect. Yet a few different things going on here. The main thing was the multimedia push, which we talked about before, and we did do an episode on that, the whole Sillywood thing. The promise of multimedia attracted entertainment companies, big entertainment companies, that started investing in this space. So some of these companies started investing in the computer game companies, like MCA, investing in Interplay, for instance, and that drove higher volume wholesale, and it drove a huge conflict for shelf space. Big box retailers were starting to really get interested in computer games for the first time. They'd been interested in video games for a long time. Your NES, your Genesis, your Super NES, your PlayStation, but they're starting to get interested in computer games for the first time, And they're only going to give you so much space. It becomes a real struggle to get on the stores of these mainstream retailers. And the mainstream retailers are where you want to go if you want to get the high volume sales. So as the media companies come in and start throwing their weight around, companies like Electronic Arts and Interplay and all of them, Activision, have to start becoming bigger themselves in order to have more clout, in order to get shelf space. So you get this huge consolidation built largely around the promise of multimedia and also the continuing spread of the IBM PC compatible into the home. And if you're a small company in this period, you're just not going to make it. And Surtec was just a family operation. They were out in the middle of nowhere. They had contacts in the industry, of course, because they're in the industry. But 
they're kind of off doing their own thing. And they haven't created a studio system like Electronic Arts has. They haven't gone out and started doing a bunch of massive acquisitions like Electronic Arts has. They're closely held. They haven't gone public. It would probably be difficult for them to go public just because they are such a small company. Unfortunately, even though they kind of realize that they need to start consolidating and creating their own internal studios and start to grow, the conditions aren't right for it because of the people they're working with. At this point, they really want to bring David Bradley in-house and form a studio around him in Atlanta to continue the Wizardry series. It's the logical thing to do. He's the one who's spearheading it. He's the one who's really done the innovation. We want you with us permanently. But unfortunately, he really is quite a lone wolf. He enjoys doing everything himself. He wants to do everything himself. He kind of just wants to be left alone to pursue what interests him. He doesn't really want a studio formed around him. He's kind of happy to keep working on these games, but he wants to do it his way. He doesn't want to be in a studio system. Plus, at the same time, there's a lawsuit that is making its way through the courts because Andrew Greenberg has gone off and gotten a law degree specializing in intellectual property law. He's not happy that he is no longer receiving royalties on the later wizardry games, like the ones Dave Bradley made. So he sues Surtech, and he sues Dave Bradley personally as well, because he's not getting royalties on the wizardry games. And you see, wizardry was created by Greenberg and Woodhead, but Woodhead was an employee of Surtech while they were creating this game. And the wizardry trademark, the trademark for the name, is a mark owned by Surtech Software. So they are allowed to make wizardry games without Greenberg or Woodhead's involvement. I don't think they have the copyright on the code, is my understanding, of the original games. They have the trademark, but there's still copyrights in Woodhead and Greenberg on the early wizardry games and on the work they did within those games, the characters they made, the code they used, etc. So he was arguing that he still had a right to royalties on the later games because he had a royalty deal. Remember, he was never an employee like Woodhead was. He had a royalty deal with Surtech. They're still making wizardry games, and so his royalty deal should still apply. Surtech's argument is, well, wait a minute. We own the mark. We can make wizardry games, and we don't have to compensate him just for the sole act of making a wizardry game. David Bradley here redid everything. We're not using his code. We've started a new story, this trilogy of games. You know, it's not like Ultima, where all the games took place in Cesaria slash Britannia, and they're all sort of linked. Some of those links are tenuous outside of the trilogies, but, you know, Richard Garrett calls it his trilogy of trilogies, and there are characters like Lord British or Iolo that are present throughout, and there are ideas present throughout, even though the story of Ultima 1 doesn't really have anything to do with the story of Ultima 9. There's links between them. Wizardry was not like that. I mean, yes, the first games you carried characters across, but there wasn't a great story. It was, go to dungeon, kill this. Go to dungeon, kill that. Oh, now the person from the first game is back for revenge. But there weren't real stories. And so the six and seven, the games that Bradley did completely from scratch, they didn't really carry over anything at all. And they didn't carry over story. They didn't carry over characters. They didn't carry over code. But this lawsuit dragged on for a while. I think it eventually settled as these things usually do. 
That kind of nonplussed David Bradley, too. Now, I want to stress, Sirtec was 100% behind him. Even though Bradley was sued personally, Sirtec was taking care of him. Bradley wasn't going to be out anything. They were going to cover his legal costs. If there were damages, Sirtec was going to take care of him. It's not like Sirtec hung him out to dry. But just the fact of being sued and the bother of being sued and the bother of depositions and the stress of it all was also getting to him, and he wasn't sure he really wanted to continue in this environment and open himself up to further accusations and further legal actions, even if he wasn't doing anything wrong, even if Sirtec wasn't doing anything wrong. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth anytime you deal with any part of the legal system. If you're the one being brought to court, that puts a lot of stress on you, maybe not fully consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Absolutely. I can think of myself for just minor things like a traffic ticket. Sure. One time my tire blew out of my car. I spun out. It totaled my car. But the uh, police officer gave me a ticket for improper use of a lane. Yeah. Well, of course I used an improper use of a lane. My tires blew out and spun out. So I had this extra stress of having to show up in court effectively to just pay a fine. I had to physically be there. And I had to drive all the way back out to where I was because where this happened was on a long road trip for me. That wasn't a fun experience. And that had a lot of stress and a lot of back and forth. And like, okay, what do I have to do here? Can this lawyer just make it disappear? Here's the money, just make it go away. That's just a car accident with a ticket. I'm not being sued. Right. You didn't have to sit for any depositions for that. <laughs> right. I don't have any depositions. I don't have any of this other stuff. The thing is, like, if you're personally sued, that means they can go after all of your personal assets. That means exactly. they can go after your house, your computers, your electronics. Yep. Anything you own is fair game as far as liquidation goes. That's why so many people make small companies called limited liability companies. That's yep. because they take all the things associated with the company and they put it in that so that they can't be personally sued and lose their house because the company did something perceivably bad and then someone goes after them and kills the company. Right, exactly. So that kind of soured him on things as well. So between that and his desire to remain independent when the Surtec people are really trying to bring him in-house, which is the right thing for Surtec to do for their own interests, he ends up cutting ties. Wizardry 7 is the last Wizardry game he does for them. Second game of this trilogy ending on a cliffhanger, and and he's gone. (laughs) Thankfully, things are going a little better up in the Great White North, because Ian Curry is only becoming closer and closer to the good people at Surtec, because, of course, he's married Linda Surtec, who's now Linda Curry. So they were trying at this time to create studios around both of them, to create an Atlanta studio around David Bradley and to create a Canadian studio around Ian Curry, Ian and Linda Curry, because Linda's taking a big role in running that studio as well. That's more successful, and they do end up establishing Surtec Canada as a development studio for the publisher, which is still based in Ogdensburg, New York. But that's all they're able to form. So they have a development studio up in Canada, And that's it. They have a couple of series. They have basically Wizardry and Jagged Alliance. They're doing the Arcania games as well on the side, which they're just publishing. They're not involved in the creation at all. They're basically just a two-game company. So the Canadian studio is already doing Jagged Alliance. So they need someone else to do Wizardry now because they don't have David Bradley. And they got this cliffhanger and they need to bring it to an end. 
So through their Australian subsidiary, they come across an Australian company that they think can create the game for them. So this Australian distributor, DirectSoft, takes on the challenge for them of trying to create this game. And they start work on a game called Stones of Arnhem that is going to be the eighth wizardry game. Well, it turns out that they just can't hack it. The game is not coming together. The work they're doing is not up to par. Surtek ends up having to cancel Stones of Arnhem and bring wizardry in-house. They have to have Surtek Canada do it, which, of course, just pushes back doing Jagged Alliance sequel because they're a small company. You know, that's a lot. Wizardry 8 ends up coming in in-house and ends up being primarily done by the Currys, Ian and Linda, and Linda's childhood friend, Brenda Garno, who later becomes Brenda Braithwaite and who even more later later becomes Brenda Romero. She's actually married to John Romero now. She'd been hanging around for about as long as her friend Linda had been. You know, Linda started working there in high school. Brenda started working there in high school. And she manned the phone lines and she did technical support and all of this stuff and then worked her way up from there to becoming a game designer in her own right. So the Currys and Brenda Garno at the time, Brenda Romero now, are finally able to finish Wizardry 8 but not until 2001. Remember, Wizardry 7, Crusaders of the Dark Savant, came out in 1992. Nine years later. Exactly. That's nine years of innovation in the computer game industry. That's insane. By the time it's done, the publisher, Surtech, actually doesn't even exist anymore. It's gone. Surtech is so weird. It just peters out. I mean, this is what Robert and Norm said at the time in interviews, and this is what Robert Siratek said to me when we talked. It came down to that shelf space battle in the big retailers, your Walmarts, your Kmarts, your Best Buys, your Fry's, whatever, your big box discount and electronic stores. They just couldn't get shelf space. And sometimes they would get shelf space, they would get a deal, And then a better deal from a bigger company would come along and the company would renege and not take all the product they said they were going to take, which, you know, they had been banking on and forecasting on and all of that. They just couldn't break through because they were so small. The only way in this time period or any time period when you're dealing with a big store, the only way to get their attention is to give them a diverse array of product that's all going to sell. If all you have is one product or two products like a Surtech has, and that's all you can have to offer, and they're not Grand Theft Autos, they're going to be games that turn a profit, but they're not going to be huge AAA sell tens of millions of copies products. You say, well, I've got these two games and they're going to sell well, and I just need a little bit of shelf space. That sounds great on the surface, but then here comes Electronic Arts. And I'm not saying Electronic Arts specifically screwed them over. They may have or may not have. I'm not saying I know any of the back and forth on the distributor backstabbing in politics. I'm just using Electronic Arts as an example as a big company. So here comes Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts is a publicly traded company. They have to meet their quarters. They have to put a certain amount of product into the channel in order to be profitable. They need to put more product into the channel to be profitable than Surtech does. So what Electronic Arts is going to do is say, I've got this game, say Madden. I've got John Madden football for you, the next John Madden. This is going to sell millions. You are going to make so much money on this. But now I've got this little game over here. It's not the greatest game in the world, 
it's maybe going to break even on us. You won't lose money on it, but maybe it just breaks even. But I'm a publicly traded company. I have to make a certain amount of revenue. I have to get a certain amount of titles out. So if you want John Madden football, you have to take this piddly little break-even game too, or I'm not selling you Madden. So now EA's piddly little game that may not be as good a game or may not even be as good a seller as the latest Wizardry game is going to take Wizardry's spot on the shelf because Electronic Arts is bringing Madden to the table. When you're a big publisher with a broad range of products, you can force retail to take your less successful products as a condition of taking your very successful product, and then you force that retailer to carry your whole range and you squeeze out a little guy that can't offer as big a hit as Madden or as broad a range of titles as an Electronic Arts. And this is the situation that Surtech found itself in. I mean, could they have done something about it? Okay, yeah, they could have technically started sooner, trying to become big. So that's hard for a small family-owned company like this. I mean, they were always small. They weren't going to get really any interest from venture capitalists, I don't think, even if they wanted interest from venture capitalists, because they're way out in the middle of nowhere, no good infrastructure, just a couple of games, small family company. They felt very strongly about delivering the products that they delivered and keeping the products high-quality products and products that they felt proud about. And that may sound a little bit corporate speak or a little marketing kind of thing, but I think there's some truth to that, that they didn't want that kind of outside intervention that would make them create games the way they didn't want to make them. There seems to be a very independent streak in the Suratex on that score. Now, having said all that, though, it's kind of funny that their one final attempt to transcend the Wizardry series and the stuff they were doing internally actually involved compromising that exact sense of quality that I have just told you about. In 1997, Surtech realizes that they really need to get into the console market or do something. I mean, that PlayStation market is just so big and that console market is just tearing everything up and they don't have the capacity to handle any of that because, of course, they've never developed their own independent studios. The problem is, as we just talked about, though, they're in the middle of nowhere. They don't have the best contacts, and everyone is already kind of grabbed up. Now, they do have good international distribution. They've always had a little bit of success with things like wizardry overseas, not just Japan, but even Europe as well. And we talked about how, for instance, they were doing the German series, the Realms of Arcania stuff, that they got through their distributor. They look to Europe to try to solve this problem, but even there... There's really nothing left but scraps. So they end up making a deal in 1997 with a company called Telstar Electronic Studios. It's a British company. It's not very noteworthy at all. They weren't very good, but they had products, some of their own, some that came from other places. For instance, a point-and-click adventure that came from an Israeli company, of all things, which is uh, certainly not common to have Israel making stuff. So they had a few games, some of them were console games, some of them like that point-and-click adventure were PC games. So just as kind of a last desperate act to try to expand the product line, in 1997, Surtech makes a deal with these guys to distribute their games in the United States. As Robert himself said to me, it's just the product wasn't very good. There really wasn't anything they could do with that product. So once again, just because they're out in the middle of nowhere and they don't have the infrastructure to bring high-quality product in that's already gone to much bigger studios like your Electronic Arts or your Infogram or whoever else, 
they're kind of left with the dregs and they release a couple of games under this deal and they just don't do well and the deal is over very quickly. They couldn't grow from without. And the one time they tried to grow from within, it just turned out the people they were working with, particularly David Bradley, just weren't interested in helping them grow from within. And so most of the companies that disappeared in this period, your Origins, your SSIs, your Interplays, your Maxises, your Microproses, almost every single one of them either tried to get big and failed spectacularly, or... They became the little fish that were gobbled up by the bigger fish, like Electronic Arts, that did grow big successfully. Surtech, I'm sure it's not the only, only example, but of the companies that we think of as the big companies of classic 1980s computer games, you know, that you would mention in the same sentence as an Origin or a Maxis or a Spectrum Holobyte or an Interplay, they're the one company in that cohort that didn't have either of those things happen. They just coasted along at a certain level until that level was no longer sustainable, and then they just vanished. They just threw in the towel. They had to give up as a publisher. And what year was that? You said they released Wizardry 8 in 2001. When did they just say, okay, I'm not dealing with this anymore? So Surtech the publisher closed in 1998. The development studio, Surtech Canada, continued as a development studio until 2003. They both owned everything. They just decided, we can't be a publisher anymore. There's no way we can publish in this environment. There's no way we can get shelf space in this environment. So we're going to wrap up publishing operations. We're not going to publish anymore. We've still got some money coming in on some of our games that are out there and some of our deals and licensing deals and whatnot that are out there. So we still have enough money that we can keep a studio going and hopefully find a publisher for Wizardry 8 that's in development, and hopefully find a publisher for Jagged Alliance 2, which is in development. Because these are hot properties, sort of. Hot is probably too strong a term for it, but they're at least properties that have name recognition behind them. And have a dedicated following behind them. So we can probably get publishers for these games. We just can't publish ourselves anymore because we'll never get the shelf space. So they keep the developer going, and they keep Wizardry 8 development going. Wizardry 8 finally does come out in 2001. And you know what? It was fine. And I mean that. It was fine. It's not an Ultima 9 story. And any Ultima fans know that Ultima went out with a complete whimper because Ultima Online became so huge that more and more resources at Origin were being shuttled into massively multiplayer games and just kind of a bare skeleton crew was trying to get Ultima 9 finished, it came out literally unplayable. Game-breaking bugs that made it impossible to complete. Even if one were to get all of those bugs patched, it was a game that was very unfinished, very empty in many places. It was a complete whimper. But I got so far in it. (laughs) That was a trap. Don't get far in it. It's only setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, there were some entertaining bugs I ran into. Yeah, game-breaking bugs. It's terrible. Unfortunately, it's terrible. Wizardry 8 is not that. It was fine. It was considered a very decent game. It finished the story. It was playable. It innovated a bit. It was now off of the grid. We talked about how Ultima Underworld, and then, of course, after it, the Elder Scrolls games, 
were actually full movement within a three-dimensional world, while earlier first-person games, including the Wizardry games, were step-based, which means they were still technically on a grid of squares. It was just presented to you in three dimensions, but you were taking a step and moving along a grid. You didn't have full freedom of movement within a world. Ultima Underworld changed that. Elder Scrolls series built on that. Wizardry 8 was also completely free-roving. It was still the same Wizardry gameplay that everyone had come to know and love, just actually in a complete world that you could explore uh, in any direction you wanted rather than being on a grid. Freeform movement is is what I mean by that. Combat is still turn-based, but enemies are roving around the world just like you are. You know, in the earlier games, since they were grid-based, you know, you didn't see enemies on the map. It was very Dragon Quest-like which, of course, Wizardry was a big influence on Dragon Quest, where if you stepped on a square and there was going to be a monster there, the monster suddenly appeared. Slime appears, command. Panic. Definitely panic. (laughs) So this one was actually not grid-based, so you could see monsters. Monsters would approach you. Combat would then still be turn-based, though it was not real-time. So something like the Elder Scrolls or Ultima Underworld had real-time combat as well. Wizardry 8 was still a wizardry game. So it kept that turn-based tactical combat that everybody kind of knew and appreciated. And it was fine. It concluded the story. People generally liked it. It didn't set the world on fire in sales, but it wasn't a failure either. That was the end of the series. You know, that came out in 2001. Jagged Alliance sequel, Jagged Alliance 2, made it out a couple of years before that in 1999 through Talonsoft, which was a, I think, Canadian strategy game publisher. No, they were American. I don't know why I thought they were Canadian, but they were a niche strategy game publisher, so they got Jagged Alliance 2 out. Jagged Alliance 2 was a pretty successful game outside the United States. May have sold as many as 300,000 units, which for a niche game like that is pretty good. It got good reviews. It didn't sell as well in the United States, but it kind of built on the Jagged Alliance gameplay. They released a sequel called Jagged Alliance 2 Unfinished Business. Despite the fact that they called it Jagged Alliance 2 Unfinished Business, it wasn't an expansion pack. It was actually a standalone sequel, but obviously just a very incremental change. I mean, they made very few changes to the game from the first. It's mostly just the same game with a different scenario. Talonsoft released that as well, but then Talonsoft hit a period of difficulty because Those kind of war games that they made were very niche, so they fell apart. So that was it for Surtex Publisher for the Jagged Alliance games. Wizardry was never able to attract a big publisher, and so, like I said, even though it was well-reviewed, it wasn't the greatest selling thing. Though it wasn't a failure, it wasn't a humongous success, and the company didn't really have much else going for it, and so they just kind of succumbed to the realities then. I mean, there's really not a big story to tell there about the collapse of either the publisher or the developer. It just kind of petered out. They liquidated assets and said, we're done. Yeah, I'm not even sure they liquidated many assets. I mean, they didn't, I don't think they filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy or anything. They just kind of stopped. I think the Ceratex still have the wizardry trademark. You know, it's not like they even did a fire sale or anything. It's just, okay, we're done now. It's kind of surprising that like a few years later, you have digital distribution starting to come into its own with Steam and other platforms. You would have thought that they would have been, okay, yeah, we sort of closed up shop here in 2003. 
maybe it's time to reopen that development studio and tap into that nostalgia, tap into that fan base, because we do make games that turn a profit. We just don't have a good distribution platform. Let's put it on Steam. Let's put it on something else like that and enjoy. The problem is, I mean, yeah, there's an indie game scene now. And it would be interesting to think about what might have happened with Surtech if they could have held on just a little bit longer until that indie game scene appeared. But Wizardry and Jagged Alliance, they were AAA games for their time. What I mean by that is, you know, AAA production values, AAA team sizes, AAA care. If you were to make another Wizardry game today, I think the Suratex would not want to cheapen the brand by making them retro or, or throwback kind of games. It would have to be a AAA title in 2020. It couldn't be an indie title in 2020, if that makes sense. It does. They really want to throw the money, the manpower, and the capability in order to make something on par of, say, the Final Fantasy VII remake, where right. I want something that really does the series justice brings it into the modern era, really innervates, takes advantage of the latest graphics capability, really tells a new and epic story. I don't want something that's a retro throwback or some sort of independent game. That's an interesting roguelike, or that's a very interesting dungeon crawl game, and it's in the vein and style of wizardry and has its own little story. So if you played the old ones, I'm just reusing the old engine with some modern improvements. Right. I can't speak for the Suratex. I'm not saying that that's something that that Robert Suratex told me, but I just get the sense that if something like Wizardry were to come back, that's the way they would probably want to see it come back. Just that speculation, though. There just isn't the market for that. I mean, there isn't the will for that. Wizardry is a series that peaked far too long ago. Uh, You know, Wizardry 7 was 1992. That was the peak of the series, uh, at least creatively. In some ways, Wizardry back in 1981 was the peak of the series <laughs> in terms of its place of prominence and influence in the world of computer games. I think at this point, Wizardry is probably something whose time has passed. There continue to be developers that were influenced by it. There continue to be games that you can see elements of the Wizardry DNA still carrying forward. But Wizardry itself and Surtech, I think they had their time. They had a good run. Robert Ziratek said those were the best years of his life uh, running that company. But, you know, it wouldn't be the same today. You couldn't have this small, family-oriented, family-run, boutique AAA publisher that just puts out a couple of games here and there and and coasts along to some success. It's it's really testament to a very different age. I think that pretty much handles everything with Wizardry and Ziratek. I know that you have come up with an idea of what we're going to be doing at some point here in the semi-near future of our big three-parter for this year. That's right. So every year, we try to do a deeper dive, a big three-part, which sometimes becomes four parts, episode covering on a massive topic in video game history. And the past couple of years, we've even uh, done a live stream when we actually record that big three-parter as well, which we will definitely do again this year on Saturday, June the 27th. And so I thought this time 
it would be nice to maybe do the history of video games, Jeff. That's something we've never talked about before in 100 plus episodes and five years of this podcast, is it? You haven't been paying attention to the words that were coming out of your mouth, obviously. I mean, I just say things and then you're like, we're too long. We need a second part. So then I stop talking and I just start talking again. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying right now. No one knows what we're saying anymore. You know, obviously, what we do here most of the time is we take a topic and we do a deep dive on that topic. It's often a corporation involved in the development of video games because a lot of my research is on the business side of things, and I want to share what I've been learning about that. Not many people are sharing that side of the business. So we do deep dives on this or that or the other thing. If you listen to enough of our deep dives... And, you know, we've done well over 100 of them now. A bigger picture starts to emerge about kind of the great ebb and flow of video game history. But you have to sit through a lot of hours and do a lot of parsing to get that big picture. So I think it would be interesting, fun, and useful to do a really broad history of video game. Sort of a roadmap, a plan, a evolution of the entire industry. Right. Of course, I'm writing a series of three books doing the very same thing. It just so happens. And so that's a nice tie-in. We might even use some of the same year divisions that I use in those books, though the third book does only go up to about 2005, or will only go up to 2005. It's not written yet. We might take the podcast a little bit closer to the present day. But obviously, even those are massive 600-page books. That is more than we could contain in three episodes either, but get really top level. These are the big trends. This is how this series of factors led to this series of events, led to this series of factors, led to this series of events. A big overarching umbrella connect the dots of this video game industry at a macro level. Obviously, it means that Halix is going to have to be a good boy and not tangent too much. We'll see if that actually happens. But you can tune into that live stream on Saturday, June the 27th, to see how big a disaster it is to try to keep Alex from going into too much detail. But I think it'll be a useful exercise for me, too, to in my own work, to try to approach at such a macro level rather than at such a micro level. I think it'll be a useful exercise for everybody, audience and us both. Of course, we'll try to do something where we take all of the episodes that we have and try to put them in some sort of vague order episode i guess or at least what we oh, cover God. in there <laughs> no, don't, don't do that you know all the memes with the guy with all of the different colored strings everywhere and he's in the middle of it that will be any of you that tries to put these in chronological order <laughs> some episodes can be put in chronological order but most many of them cover such a broad spread of years you really can't We can provide some guidance on which episodes cover which topics. We obviously will, but don't ever try to put the whole thing in order. You'll end up like one of those poor souls that ends up discovering Cthulhu and is a gibbering madman for the rest of his life. (laughs) But yeah, I think think it'll be a fun exercise to just do They Create Worlds presents the history of video games. But in the meantime, I think before that we should talk about Another company that we've never, ever talked about before. What, two in a row? Atari. But Alex, we've talked about Atari Corporation. We've talked about 
how the rise and fall of Atari in four parts. We talked about the crash of Atari in this three-part thing with the great video game crash. We have the intro things to Atari with these arcade stuff. And we have the one where we talk about the entire history of the Atari brand, which involves France and all this madness out there. I think this podcast has covered more about Atari than practically anything else. But Jeff, this is Atari Games. Insert spectate here. <laughs> so one aspect of the company that we haven't covered in detail, though obviously it came up in the Atari brand episode, is Atari Games. When the company was split after the crash and the consumer and computer stuff was sold off to Jack Trammell, the original kind of arcade incarnation, coin-op incarnation of the company, continued under the name Atari Games. We haven't really looked at a lot of their activities. In part, that's because I don't really have as many interesting to say things to say about the business of the company or the management side of the company. But they also created some really classic games in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And we haven't covered most of those. Occasionally something came up in another context, like Area 51 with light gun games. But there's a lot of coin-op game history in there that's kind of interesting that we've barely touched on at all. Since we've been kind of computer-heavy recently, it feels like it's about time to switch to a different sector of the industry again. Let's do some Atari games. Back to the arcades next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>